Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa. Sharing stories of first gigs and shows. Comedians sharing their memories. The fun and entertaining, exciting and crazy. With Dwayne Dugan as your host. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Here we go. Looks like we made it. Look how far we've come, my baby. Hey guys, we are here. We have reached it at last a conclusion. Three years in the making. It is the final episode of My First Gig with me, Dwayne Dugan. Series 3, episode 12. Uh, what a fantastic guest I have today. I've had this episode in the bag for quite some time and I wanted to save it for a series finale. Obviously the first series was sidetracked by the pandemic. The second series was Pandemic Stories Online, and now at last, the end of season three. We may have taken a while to get here, but the wonderful, the iconic, the legend that is Phil Jupitus is closing out this season. Episode 30, and what a story it is. You'll uh, you'll hear once we get into the little chat there that uh, when I ask, hey, Phil, what's your first gig? He says, which one of them? Because he doesn't have one, he doesn't have two. He has three first gigs, and it is a great story. It's an extra long bonus chat. Uh, Phil was over doing a couple of shows in Dublin in March 2020. Literally, literally the week. I know I say these were just before the week, somewhere, a couple of weeks, somewhere, a couple of months. This was March 2020 before the lockdown happened. And Phil was over doing some shows around North Dublin. And we met in the beautiful seaside town of Hoth in a hotel after he had completed the shows, ready to fly back to the UK. And he was very gracious with his time. I asked him for 30 minutes. He gave me an hour and a half. And you can get an hour of it right here on Acast for my first gig. If you would like to hear more, if you would like an extended episode, if you would like some questions that you don't get here on the Acast feed, then go to patreon.com for us. That's my first gig pod. And get early, get ad free. And as I'm saying, get extended for just five euro a month on the club comic tier. And that's not all. While this is the season finale and I'm going to take a little break and come back with more episodes early next year, fear not if you are a Club Comic member on Patreon. Starting next week, I think next Friday, exclusively on Patreon, these will not be public. You will not see them in your iTunes app. You will not see them on Spotify. The only way to get these bonus episodes, we're going to have 10 bonus episodes with the stars of the Irish comedy scene, my first gig, telling their first stories Kicking off next Friday is by subscribing to Patreon. So head over to patreon.com for us. That's my first gig. And yeah, it's I'm delighted that we finally made it. It's mad that this this was meant to end the season that started in 2020, but it just took a while. Obviously, the pandemic shut things down, but here we are. We finally made it, and I am delighted. It's been, uh, it's been a trying couple of weeks, trying to secure interviews over the last uh, couple of months while... Well, touring comics aren't necessarily happening, and I kind of I've I've 
snookered myself by making it exclusively touring comics because I have the second series on Patreon of the Irish comedy scene. So any comedians who live here are part of that. But I hope you've been enjoying the episodes last week. Give it up for the fantastic episode with Kai Humphreys. Took me a second to remember, but yes, Kai Humphreys. Fantastic comedian, doing great stuff. He's got a couple of big shows over in the stand in the UK, in Glasgow and in Newcastle. His hometown in Newcastle almost sold out. So if you listen to that episode and you enjoyed Kai's stuff, I'm sure you already know, but head on over to the stand.co.uk, buy some tickets. Phil Jupitus, what are we meant to say? I grew up watching Phil on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Phil uh, started in poetry, he'll tell you in the in the episode, and then moved into stand-up comedy and became a staple of the British comedy scene and certainly on telly in panel shows. And Phil, yeah, he was just, he was a lot of fun. I didn't expect, you know, we, you know, when you meet these people that you've known for 20 years but never met them, never known them personally, you're never sure what they're going to be like and he could have been more gracious with his time. I remember even afterwards he was promoting the podcast even when his, his episode wasn't on. So I really appreciate that, and I'm going to feel real awkward this week when I send him a little message saying, hey, Phil, your episode's coming out. He went, who the fuck are you? I'm like, we know we recorded the podcast two and a half years ago. You're like, um, I think I remember. So uh hope you're looking forward to that. Glad to get to the end of the season. It's hard. It is hard, mother fathers, getting these episodes out every single week. and getting them Because you think that you're listening on a Wednesday. I'm doing this on a Sunday night, getting them ready for the Patreon subscribers on Monday morning. And you could be one of those people. I don't want to keep flogging the, the paid channel, but you could be one of those people. Go to patreon.com for us. That's my first gig. And listen to them early, ad-free, and extended. And as I said, you'll get the bonus episodes. Ten bonus episodes that you will not hear unless you are a member of the Patreon feed. Uh, I'll promote them on the social media. So if you see them there and you're wondering what's going on, those are those episodes. That's how you get them. But if not, like them. Like the page, follow the page, subscribe, tell a friend, share the stories. If you're enjoying a comedian, if you discovered a comedian that you didn't know before and you're now checking out their work, leave a comment under their tweets, under their videos and say, hey, I heard you on my first gig and now I'm listening here. That means the world and that helps helps us spread the name, spread the numbers and spread the love of my first gig. It's really fun doing this uh, show and I'm looking forward to coming back for season four and some fun people lined up thankfully now the flow the heavy flow of comedians from the uk and ireland is happening and there's some brilliant people visiting dublin over the next couple of months so if you are based in ireland and you see who's coming and you think god i wonder if they're on my first gig don't wonder let them know that you want to hear them on my first gig podcast because no doubt i'll be spamming their email so if somebody else says it too they might think that this is a bit legitimate and not just an excuse for me to go see their gigs for free but I've been rambling on for too long. How long are we deep into this? Only six minutes. I'll do a shorter intro today because, as I said, the episode is over an hour long with Phil. And I don't want to keep you. Don't want to leave you waiting. Don't want to leave you hanging. So if you're here to listen to my first gig with Phil Jupiter, well, guys, then now is the time. Sit down. Put your headphones in. Get a snack. Maybe some crackers. Maybe some butter. Maybe some fresh toast. Maybe you got a crisp sandwich going on. Maybe a little bit of chocolate. Whatever your nibble of choice is. Get it inside you. And listen. And relax. And enjoy. My first gig with the icon, Phil Jupitus. 
I read that you're living in. You moved to Scotland recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's a little? Is it a little quiet town like this? It's small, way smaller than and this is, than how this is yeah, small. This it's a it's a fishing village north shore of the Forth estuary uh, that I won't name, but um, I mean, there's only four of them. Uh, I'm just going to do the count now. There's bunch. There's a bunch around the edge of the coast, and I live in one of them anyway. Um, and yeah, population is. In in the high hundreds, don't think it touches a thousand. Wow, what 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 what, uh, what prompted that kind of change? Because I imagine you probably were yeah in London for some time. Well, or... I was I was most wasn't London. I lived I lived suburban Essex. Uh, that's where I um, raised my kids. Was a, a little town called Leon Sea, which is sort of like the posh end of South End uh, on the on the Thames, and I grew up there. And I think, um, I mean, Scotland, I have always loved, ever since I first started coming up to the Fringe and gigging there more regularly, I just, there was a pull that I felt that I couldn't really quantify. I knew that I really liked it there. And then when it became apparent, you know, that my girls had moved away, one of my daughters emigrated, she lives in America with her wife now, and my um, my other daughter, she's uh, she's in the Midlands, She's she's, you know, doing her own thing as well. Once once the kids had gone, you know, we, we had choices to make. Um, and we could, you know, we had a big old house that we didn't really need, so so we kind of traded that in for a small, uh, for a small sort of fishing cottage on the coast in Scotland. Yeah, it's quite a departure now, but it's, it's probably a, it's a nice change, I'd say. Well, what this has enabled me to do, both geographically and emotionally and, and in all manner of other things, it's just a big change, and, and that that adjustment. I think if you make big changes in your life, you kind of, the rest of your life, perforce has to fit in around the changes that you've pushed on yourself. Um, so as a result of moving to Scotland, I've, I'm, I'm at university now, so I'm doing a degree in, uh, fine art at the Duncan of Georgianston College of Art and Design at the University of Dundee. So, and I'll be doing that for four years. Well, so it's a full, it's a full on thing. Oh, yeah. 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 So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm semi-retired now from, from these gigs that I've been doing in Ireland that, that you know, this is, you know, we are talking now in Ireland and I'm over here uh, I kind of I did for Aidan as a bit of a favour because he wanted to he wanted to try a couple of rooms out and he quite likes it. if he can get someone like me that's got a big telly name then he knows he can fill the room out you see what it looks like with, when it's full and also it's you know uh, it helps him build relationships with venues and, and people so uh, yeah he's uh He's a he's a he's an interesting lad to work for, Aidan. I like him a lot. Yeah, and and the thing about the the scene in Ireland and the audiences in Ireland, they are definitely different from those in the UK. There's there's uh, there's much more much more of a sense of a night out as something we have invested in and we will have a good time. You know, yeah. Rather than a habit thing. Oh, let's just go and see some comedy. Bit shruggy. They're much more. There's a commitment. Yeah, I, so I, I spent a while in, in England and it took me so long to realise that shows start at 8 o'clock because mm. people will go out, they'll have their dinner, they'll go to the show and they'll go home. Mm, yeah. Whereas here shows won't start till 9, some won't start till half 9, 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's a night out, it is, yeah. it's a full on. Yeah. You're not going home afterwards, you've got a babysitter, you've got yeah. 
that's there's that odd thing. It's because I'm used to the eight o'clock. They that with, with me, and also it's because with my age, it's like I say to them. I said, look, the earlier you get me on, the better I'm going to be. Because <laughs> you know, after after half nine, I start to get sleepy. So, <laughs> so yeah, we kind of reached this kind of sort of compromise time of sort of eight forty five. Okay. <laughs> But the, the the trip in the shows, I guess, then lent itself to the course because you you were able to you spent quite a bit of time in um, in galleries this weekend as well. Yeah, I've been. Um, I think you know it's when you're in Dublin, it's it's, um, and I know I know the thing is is I uh, every time I go to the National, the Irish National Gallery, I'm like, oh god, it's just I forget how big it is. I mean, and there's obviously loads of you know there's there's stuff that I really want to hit the Giacometti, the the there's that. Um, Beautiful Venetian um, uh, bead threading painted by John Singer Sargent. You know, there's all of the um, all of the uh, that the Irish abstract, the women Irish abstract painters of the twenties, whose names elude me at the moment. But there's three of them in the main galleries. I think it's sort of gallery uh, sixteen, maybe seventeen, sixteen, seventeen. So if you're going by the numbers, between fifteen to eighteen. They're in there. And uh, the idea that these women, you know, at a time in the 1920s were going to Paris. If you think about, you know, the way, you know, where the position of Irish women in society in the 1920s, how, how ballsy have you got to be to go to Paris to study abstract art in, in Irish society in the 1920s? You know, a time of flux for the nation in the wake of 1916, you know, the changes that were going on there societally. But as women to go, well, well, good, freedom, great, let's grasp it, let's do it properly. And I'm just fascinated that they went and they did this work. And the work itself is absolutely outstanding. So, yeah, we've got some hoovering going on out there. Good industrious. I don't think we're (laughs) touched just yet, but we'll see how we get on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned a little while ago uh, you've loved Scotland since going to the Fringe. When when did you first go to the Fringe? It's a, I think it was 1990 was my first Fringe. So we did um, myself and a comedian called John Mann uh, did a show uh, called The Live Essex Show. Uh, and we were we were there alongside... Um, uh, yeah, that hoover's getting closer and closer. <laughs> <laughs> She's right up at the door now. Listen, you can, I don't know if you can hear it. She's actually now banging the door frame. If she wants to come in here, I'm going to have. She's going to have my me looking at her. But yeah, um, it was me. Uh, there was a poet called Little Dave, a musician called Murray Talkildson, um, another uh, singer songwriter called Rainbowin, and we were all from Essex, and so we had the idea of doing doing this thing called the Live Essex Show, and it, we made all the classic mistakes of a first fringe show which is there was five of us. So economically, there was never going to be enough ticket money to give us any money for each other. No one was going to be making any money. The show was an hour and a half long, so we were paying for a double uh, a double um, slot because it was longer than an hour. So we, we just made every mistake <laughs> you could make about going to the Fringe. We got a lovely little flat that we all lived in together. Um, Lorraine got a room to herself. I seem to remember... I was in uh, a sort of cupboard, sort of cupboard I was sleeping in, you know, but we, we, you know, there were sofas, everyone, everyone kind of, you know, found their way. But it was just, the thing is, it was just being at the fringe was such an overwhelmingly extraordinary experience, you know, and it's like, you suddenly realise you're in this city where there's just 
thousands of creative people making their work and and that is that that a feeling still sort of persists even you know at the fringe now whereas i because i've seen it again and again all i've watched is the escalation of stand up as the as an economically simple way of doing so all i see in edinburgh now is portrait photographs of someone making a face their name a pun title uh, shows now are usually high concept shows which means they're based around a theme so it's like you know um you know um here's my you know it's, it's uh i got into twitter arguments with trolls and here's what happened and people that do you know powerpoint presentations as their shows and it's all everyone uh the grammar of putting on an edinburgh show is attainable through technology now to everybody and the promotion and so it's a quite sort of level playing field but there are just thousands and thousands of thousands of people ostensibly doing the same thing and i don't know how healthy that is for like, that, an international art festival that's what i wanted to ask as you know you know someone who's seen it you know i love hearing the stories of, of, of the fringe in, in the 90s but I, i've only experienced it in say the last five years yeah, and yeah. it's just the enormity of it is mm. i think that you certainly my thing is is how how you don't want to reinvent the wheel exactly but how do you do it in a different way and so that's why i as a you know as a television uh, you know a, a known television personality in the uk so i thought how can i do this differently and i went right i'm going to do the free fringe i'm going to do free shows and my agent thought i was insane and now uh, but people were like oh and then when you, once you get in and you start doing it and you realize that it feels more like a festival when you do free shows to me you know i understand that you know uh, the 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 standard sort of ticketed way of doing things is there but there appears to be an industry system for the fringe of um review websites like uh and um like chortle and everything there now appears to be a you know acts that go up think right i need a good review from chalk and i need a good review from one four review and i need a good review from this and and they're that when are the review people in when are the award people in when's this one it's everyone seems to be going up there with a with a career objective in mind and i'm like well where's the joy in that that you're going up there and it's it's them it's turning something i got into comedy because i didn't like work and now this industrialized system for marketing comedy that 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 the agencies and the promoters and the venues have you know i'm really not sure how good underbelly adding to the whole edinburgh thing has been i mean it's made charlie and ed a lot of money but i'm not sure how good it is for the soul of the city I quite like the, you know, the. It just seemed a little more ramshackle back in the nineties, but you know, I and then I realise now, and I'm fully aware that anybody listening to this is thinking, "You stupid old cunt, what are you on about? <laughs> Why are you, you know, moaning about how much better it was in the good old days?" And I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, that progress is unavoidable, and the way that Edinburgh is now, I just don't love it like I used to. I'm much more likely to go and see theatre or dance at the fringe because i just find stand-up too overwhelming just the sheer choice i'll go and see mates doing stuff you know but like if you go by this year's numbers i think 
on the free on the two main free fringes alone, you're competing with, I think it's four thousand five hundred shows. Jesus Christ! Think about that. But that makes no sense whatsoever. Because, no. but it, it is a you know it's an open invite. It's not even an invite. Well, I it's used a, to like you know even look my you think it, oh God it's just like everyone goes it's like it's a money making machine. Be like Glastonbury. Glastonbury is a money making machine. But Michael Evis knows every four years take a year off, let people reset. Stop doing it. And I think Edinburgh should do the same. I think there should be no fringe every four years. Let, let the city be the city in August. And then maybe people then can like reevaluate. And you know why, the, and you know why it, they don't do that? It's because there's just too much money at stake. It's the majority of the city's income happens in those months. You know, like Travel Lodge charges four times as much for a room at the weekend in August. Four times as much. Look at the Airbnb rates in August for rooms. Just talk to comedians about some of the horror stories of some of the shitholes they end up staying in and what they're charged for them in Edinburgh. What people, you know. And miles everyone, away at times. Everyone, everyone is trying to make from this what what should be an, an overwhelmingly positive thing. It's just become this, it's like this, it's a monster that's sort of out of control. And I genuinely think that they should not do it. They should stop it for a while. I'm not saying be like the Olympics. Even Manchester, the International Festival. How important is Manchester International Festival to the people of Manchester? It's an incredibly vital thing. And they could easily do it annually. But no, let's do it every two years. Let's not make it stupid. And I seriously think that the Fringe one year should not happen. Let's just not do this. And I think the people of the city of Edinburgh that live there would be thanking you. I mean, and also... You know, the comedians in August, let's see how they react, what they do. Do they set up a festival somewhere else? Do they work harder at getting more gigs? What happens? What do they do? You know, let's see what the industry does and how it reacts to not doing that. But it simply won't happen because there's too much money at stake. You know, I, I just think it's, it's, be, it's not what it was. It's that's just not, not what it was, and that's, no. that's the nature of progress, you know? That is the nature of the world we live in, and I can't do anything to change that. These are just thoughts. No, it's very interesting. So, as we touch upon your, your first gig, I want to yeah. ask you, just before that, uh, what's your first memory of comedy? And you can interpret comedy however you wish. Um, so, well, so that would be as a child. So my first... Memory of comedy in that someone who was going against the grain of what was around them and being uh, me thinking, looking at someone in a situation thinking, you're funny, you're the funny one. You do something that the others don't do. And it, I like it. I don't know why I like it, but I like it. And you're funny. And was, there was a children's television program in the 1960s in the UK called Play School which was on every day and it was for like it was for toddlers basically for three to six year olds it was it was just this show and there are a number of different presenters on it there was a very well-known uh 1960s 70s actor called Derek Griffiths used to do it um um, the, um Carol oh god what was what was her name who a friend of mine ended up marrying one of them uh and uh her name eludes me. This is what I hate about being in my 50s because <laughs> basically the hard drive of my memory just pushes certain things out to make room for new shit. So um, I can't remember the names of the play school people. But Johnny Ball, Zoe Ball's dad, Johnny, was a play school presenter. Um, uh, but there was this guy on play school called Brian Kant. And he was funny. 
and uh, some, you know, I remember talking about him when I was older with mates, and we were fairly sure he was a dopehead. I, I got to do an Edinburgh show with Brian Kent, strangely, uh, which was about him. Uh, he used to be the voiceover of another children's television programme called Trumpton, and we did a show together called Trumpton Tales, where I just interviewed him every day, and the show was different every day. Because we would just chat about different stuff. We had a basic introduction that was always the same. And then the first sort of three questions would be the same. And then I'd go off on a different tangent with him. So I worked with Brian for a while. We very, very sadly died a couple of years ago. He was just an absolutely wonderful man. and But yeah, a really quirky guy. And so as a kid, I was aware that this guy was different. So that in terms of a human being being funny. Kent was my first ex exposure to it. And then in terms of uh, people in rooms telling jokes, the paradigm was it's your, it's your comedians. It's your, your Bernard Mannings, your, you know, your Jimmy Joneses, uh, uh, people with bow ties and dinner jackets saying, my mother-in-law, you know, that. So I thought, that seems very strictured, very confined. So I wasn't sure how I felt about that. And then my grandfather and grandmother had uh, had a couple of long playing albums by uh, Max Miller, who was a comedian in the uh, 30s and 40s in the UK. Um, used to do musical, Max. And I listened to some of... I used to listen to those albums when I was like eight. And I could hear people laugh because he was filthy, but I so I didn't know why they were laughing. But um, but the rhythm of comedy, he was. But and again, he's telling jokes. This became the thing. Is the more that I listened to it live, it was telling jokes. And then uh, in the mid seventies, I was I think maybe thirteen, maybe fourteen. So this would have been seventy five, seventy six. Um, Steve Martin was on the British BBC chat show Parkinson. And, and this guy comes on with the rabbit ears and the banjo and he's doing this stuff and then he sits down with Parkinson and gets some scissors out and cuts Parkinson's tie off during the interview and he's silly and he's daft and he's big and he's rock and roll he's and I'd never seen anything like it in my life Clive James was being interviewed on the show as well and Clive James was just pissing himself Michael <laughs> Parkinson was not enjoying it and I'll never forget it and then completely by accident within six months of me seeing this guy who I'd never heard of who he was plugging the film The Jerk uh, I was in a record shop in Basildon and in the bargain basement bin I found uh, the two albums, Comedy Is Not Pretty and Wild and Crazy Guy by Steve Martin. And I bought those albums and I wore those fuckers out. I absolutely wore those albums out. So that was, you know, in terms of sort of comedy as a as, it, towards, towards stand-up, that was what I was kind of exposed to. But comedy in general... Being British, it's situation comedy, it's characters, it's Dad's Army, or it's the big variety show, so it's two Ronnies, it's Morecambe and Wise. Morecambe and Wise owned comedy. And then sort of as I was a kid, 
the, the kind of alternative side of it was your Oxbridge lot, was your Pythons, was your Beyond the Fringe and your Monty Python kind of posh boy comedy. Uh, and it was, let's not be in any way, there weren't any women doing comedy in the 70s. There simply weren't, even though there were. Um, they were invisible. So it was just, you know, it was Morecambe and Wise, it was the two Ronnies, it was the Pythons, you know, who had Carol Cleveland come along. I should have called her Carol Cleavage because that seemed to be all they put her on in sketches for. She seemed to be so marginalised, it was unbelievable, you know. But, yeah. So the Pythons were along and then things like 40 Towers happened. And so it's things, the evolutions, stuff was changing as I was growing up. And then, so when I was in my late teens, that was when alternative comedy started. So that's the comic strip then. So that is Alexi. And things like, people like Rowan Atkinson as well. So the posh side of it, Rowan Atkinson was, you know, exploding at the same time as Alexi Sale and Rick and Aid and French and Saunders. And so I remember that as being a kind of, that there's change in the air, that something is happening. I went to see Alexi Sale when I was um, 18 in Basildon. That was the first, I think that was the first actual stand-up gig I went to because I went to see Rowan Atkinson just before live and that was much more like a like a theatre show. That was like, it was very well-crafted and really brilliant. But it was definitely a, you know, oh, this is something different from, Alexi was just, was doing stand-up. And then came up the end and did Mr. Sweary, and I've never seen anything like that in my life. Genuinely never seen anything like that in my life. When your kind of jaw drops and you're watching this guy just using four-letter words, but screaming them in a rhythm and a pace. Fuck, 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 And to the point where it's like, what is this funny? And then he keeps doing it until it becomes funny, and it goes around the corner again until it stops being funny. It just, it was just like, it's just a complete eye opener. It was just insane. Uh, so, through all that you've you know you, you you found different things that 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 you enjoy and that, um, whether it's you know coming across Steve Martin and then finding the records and and hearing the audiences laugh. What's it like then once you're first at those shows, whether it's Rowan Atkinson or it's like uh, and then being part of that audience? Did that was that something different? Yeah, then? you're aware. I think you're aware certainly with the Alexi Sale gig. Because people will wink with laughter at that sweary bit at the end. And I think part of the absurdity is he's just saying fucking cunt. It's just all he's doing. How is that funny? And so, but there were there were 300 of us in that room. Weak. And and so there's some, there's a power in that, you know. Being in that, old, being, seeing it live, I'm so glad I kind of made the effort. I saw Rick Mayle live, uh, which was good because when he went on tour doing stand-up, because most of how we knew him was the young ones uh, and characters. So he did Rick from the young ones. Uh, it wasn't with aid. So they used to, they had their, they had their kind of double act, Dangerous Brothers. So uh, that they did. So Aid wasn't out with them. When Rick did the stand up tour on his own, he actually went out with Andy de la Tour and Ben Elton. So Andy De La Tour went on first, and then Ben Elton came on and did stand-up. And he would, Ben Elton was excellent, you know, for all of the fact that he kind of went in a very different direction uh, later on. Yes, I, I, kind of, I sort of feel sorry for Ben, because Ben made some, you know, some choices in his life, which was firstly to be very left-wing and labour, 
but then to become very establishment by the same token and like and he always wonders why people give him such a hard time and it's like you know it's like people just didn't like the fact that he that he's working with one of the biggest Tories in entertainment Andrew Lloyd Webber and people just don't like that it just felt <laughs> and you know it's, it's it's you can't be kind of street political and then suddenly you know you've got Robert De Niro's money and 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 Mr you know conservative <laughs> it seemed like the weirdest thing when he did the uh, when he did the book for um, We Will Rock You it was everyone was, a bit, everyone was a bit sort of what but I thought he had a I remember I met him in the street I met him in the street round about the time just after We Will Rock You had been running for a while and it got terrible reviews but it was incredibly successful who cares about the terrible reviews if you're a success the crowds loved it and that's it he, he knew what people liked he's such a good writer I went to see a few of his plays and they were they were you know he had, he's great at plot I, I read his early novels the man knows plot the man knows writing he's a great writer but he just he was always he couldn't bear the fact that other comedians didn't like didn't like him didn't like him there's you know, You've got to develop a real. You've got to have a tough eye about it. And I'm thinking, what does he? He went off to live in Australia. You know, he, he's got to have a a bit of a hide, a tough hide about it. I think. You know, but I remember bumping into him in the street, and I'm like, I'm like, up, and I was, I was quite upfront with him. I mean, I've got to say, mate, I was, I couldn't believe it when I saw you sat with Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, I was, you know, I saw you. The last time I saw you live was, you know, the, the 1987 election, which was, you know, touch and go. He was doing a benefit at a marginal in Greenwich, and he was unbelievable. He's really good. Really angry, vitriolic stuff about what the Tories were up to back in the 80s. He was fabulous. And I'm like, I couldn't square it with you sitting next to Andrew Lloyd Webber. What's this all about? And his, his words to me were, well, well, Phil, well, Phil, you know. Sometimes we've all got to pay the piper. And I'm like, what does that mean? Some <laughs> <laughs> riddles. Yeah, yeah. But I, I gigged with him a couple of times. And um, I'm, technically, as a live stand-up, he was really good. You know, but I didn't I didn't like what he did on telly as much as I did seeing him live. On telly, you could you could tell he was holding back so that he could say things on telly. He was just mitigating his language and his rhythm. And so I thought on television he was a weak stand-up. But um, live, um, I saw him, I'm trying to think. Gig with him once, with him once, saw him, saw him twice. The two times I saw him, and in fact that time I gig with him, he was excellent. I, I, I want to move on to, to, to your first gig now. Yeah. now, but I know you probably have two. Is this? Well, it's, I've been trying, um, I, I've been thinking of that. I mean, there were three. Okay. Um, but the thing is, is there's a, the third, I can't work out when it exactly was, but I know there was a third one. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What, what would you consider your first gig? Would it be those, those poetry sessions? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, definitely. First gig was definitely the poetry and, and, and how, how that came about was uh, in and of itself was sort of quite strange. So I, uh, before I was performing, uh, I was a, a cartoonist, I was an illustrator. And I used to do stuff for, for music fanzines in the UK. So the fanzines were the independently produced uh, little magazines that fans would make themselves, uh, where they would you know, use as an excuse to talk to their favourite bands and that were an alternative to, you know, like the Melody Maker and Sounds and the NME, you know, and Record Mirror and all that. So they were just basically a a, a kind of underground, self-produced music magazines. But they also incorporated uh, football. I know a lot of them used to talk about football, certainly uh, uh, Richard Edwards, who did... Uh, um, uh, he did, come on, it was out on the floor. Uh, he used to talk about Colchester United, you know, uh, in Out on the Floor. I know that uh, uh, Nick Taylor, who did New Youth in Hull, he used to write about Hull City on the back of every issue. So it was sport, it was football, it was, and at the time it was also, you know, the, the ranting poets were in the, the ascendancy in the early 80s. And so people like um, Attila the Stockbroker and Jules Demby, and Stephen Wells, they were all uh, doing gigs, and so they, again, they provided good copy for these fanzines. You know, they 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 were great supporters and advocates. And to be honest, a lot of the the poets were making their own fanzines as well. Uh, Swells, uh, Stephen Wells did one called Attack on Bazag. Jules, uh, Denby did one. I know she did her own fanzine that was mostly her artwork and poems. Uh, and Attila did one called Tirana Thrash. Uh, so there was um, also a poet called the Big J. Uh, she did a fanzine out of Peterborough where she lived. Um, there was, you know, uh, so there was a there was a, a scene that required content, and uh, and so they could write till the cows came home. They could do all their own editorial stuff. But what? what and, and as I read fanzines, I realised that for their artwork and their visual content, they were nicking stuff out of comics and magazines in a sort of collage style. They would nick other people's cartoons, or you know. And I thought, well, why don't I do cartoons for these fanzines? 
And so I started drawing stuff and um, I met Nick Taylor who did New Youth and uh, I started sending him cartoons and he loved them. He started using them in New Youth and uh, what happened was, was a tiller the stockbroker saw my cartoons in Nick Taylor's fanzine and then he asked Nick Taylor for my address and he sent me a letter, a tiller the stockbroker, saying, I really like your drawings. I've got a book of poetry coming out and I think I'd quite like you to illustrate it for me. Can we meet? And I was quite excited by this because I was a big fan of Attila's. This was, seemed, this was unbelievable to me. I was like, I was so excited. And so it was, I'm pretty sure, so it's definitely 1983 and I think it was August or September 1983, the late summer, 1983. It, uh, Attila says, I'm doing a gig in West London in the Portobello Road. Why don't you come along and we'll have a chat about doing it. Can you bring some of your drawings for me to have a look at? And so uh, me and a few mates, I said, oh, I'm going to see Attila do a gig. Why don't we go to the gig? I've got to have a meeting with him as well. And then we'll see the gig and then we can all come up. And so and my mates, uh, Lorraine and Liz, and Gary all came with me. Uh, and we went to this pub in the Portobello Road. And I met Attila. And we, we sit down. And I say, hello. I'm Porky. And he went, oh, I'm John. And we had a chat. And he said, so have you you've got some drawings? And I went, oh, yeah, I've got. And I gave him a folder, like an envelope folder. Uh, and it had the drawings in it. But I used to keep everything in the folder that I did creatively. So all the... Uh, drawings are in there but also there were uh i'd been right i'd started writing poetry i've been writing poems and there were a few poems at the bottom of the pile and so he's going through the drawings looking at them laughing go these good I'm like, yeah 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 i like this you know and then he gets to the uh he gets to the bottom of the pile and he finds a poem he's reading it and i went oh no that's just that's nothing there's no more drawings now that's it he went no no, no wait a minute <laughs> and he reads one and then he reads the next one and then he goes, uh, you're going to do these tonight before my gig. And I'm like, what? He went, you're going to go up tonight before me and do these two poems. And uh, I was like, no, I can't. He went, yeah, you're getting up and doing them. And, uh, and he was like, how do you want me to introduce you? And so my nickname with my mates, and it had been for like four years, had been Porky, always had been. And I used to sign my artwork, Porky. It was just like, and it was a partially sort of a tribute. There's a guy uh, called George Peckham who, um, George Peckham was a record cutter. So when you made an album, George Peckham was the guy that actually made the first, made the 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 thing, made the the actual cut the groove in the metal plate that would make the records. And you can always, now anyone at, that's listening to this podcast, get your old vinyl albums out and look at the inner groove, particularly anything from the um, 80s, 70s that you bought, anything, or maybe your mum and dad's record collection and, and dig it out and have a look. And on the run-out groove, he used to write a Porky Prime cut. On, scratch it into the vinyl on the inside run-out groove. So I, I've, I've got loads at home with that on them because this guy, George Porky Peckham, used to do it. And so partially... Is a bit of a, you know, I thought, Porky's a really good kind of working name. I like that. So that's why I used to sign me up, Porky. And 
So he said, well, how do you want me to introduce you? And I just, and on, on the spot, I just went, Porky the Poet. And that was it. So that's how the, the working name came about. What time of the day are we talking? That this this, this was this was in the evening, so the, it was an evening gig. So I met him. Uh, I met him at about six. And we were having a few scoops. Gig started at half seven. Uh, I went on stage. Yeah, I went on stage about half seven. You didn't have too much time to think about it, then. Nope. I just and that's it. It just he, and he he went and I can't even remember what John said. He went. This guy's. It's his first ever gig. You know, uh, he's a uh, uh, he's a he's a really good cartoonist, uh, and uh, but I, I just discovered that he's a poet as well, and his poems are really funny. Please welcome Porky the poet. And I went on stage and I did two poems. One, the first one I did was called "They've All Grown Up in the Beano," and the second one was a dog shit poem. Uh, all grown up in the Beano, I could recite to you right now easily. I can do that for you. I still remember it to this day. Dog shit one, I've forgotten. Yeah. We got a little bit of the- They've all grown up in the Beano. Dennis the Menace has got pubic hair. Biffo is well into anarchy now. He's more of a punk than a bear. Lord Snooty is a high court judge taking bribes through a Zurich bank. He had a run in with the Avenue when he saw bunkers and castles to the Yanks. Grandpa is at last six foot under. Roger the Dodger is in the SPG now dodging charges for murder. But Lord Snooty will help him. You'll see. The three bears are on racks in Harrods because Hanky shot them at last and Tisha was thrown out of Bass Street for being too pissed when in class. That's about half of it. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, that was it. So I did that poem. And then, so that night, it was like, okay, you can perform as well. It, the but They went down well, crowd, no heckling, no nothing, because it was poetry though. And it was John, it was a crowd there for Attila. So it was, you know, it was, uh, so they were kind of predisposed to listening to poetry, I suppose. Were, were you, like, had you experienced poetry performance before? I mean, I might have read them out at school. I mean, I assume I did at some time, you know. I used to like writing long story-style poems. I remember that I enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, I was a washout at school because, uh, particularly at big school, because there's a... At little school, you can be fascinating an individual and the teachers will indulge you and, uh, and the other kids, you know, they don't see anything different. But if you... When you get to big school, if you try to be different, then the your students around you are like, what the fuck are you doing that for? Take the piss out of me. And suddenly life gets harder. And so I was a sort of like a top dog at junior school. And then I went to big school, died on my fucking ass because they didn't want to know about the fact that I was good at doing silly voices. I was always asked to do things in school plays at little school. You know, I remember uh, one of my teachers did a did songs from the musical Oliver, did a co- little school concert. And she she said, she said, you know, you do that funny voice. She said, could you be like a Victorian chimney sweep? And she basically she got me to compare her gig <laughs> when I was seven. And I'm like, and, but like, I was so ballsy when I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds like a laugh. Yeah, I'll do that. Well, she got, I'm like, and I remember ad-libbing. So she gave me things to say before the songs, but I remember definitely ad-libbing. And getting a laugh when I was seven. So I think it's just that's all it is, is if you're a bit of a show off as a kid. Now that can either be it's the the way in which it's done. It wasn't I enjoyed it and I felt it was fun to do it, but um all that had been beaten out of me by being at school. And I did a few school plays, but I quite like the 
just the the anonymity, the kind of the flat sort of. You, you're just doing a play. You go up, you do a little bow, and that's it. You've said your piece, and that's it. You know, I did a few. We did Journey's End. We did Manfrew Seasons. So I used to like acting at school, but generally performing, I I just wasn't into as an idea. So, you know, um, and then you know, so so eighty three. I was twenty one. I was twenty one when I did my first gig. But it's apparent from 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 hearing that bit that you did. You know there's comedy in it yeah it's very much you know yes well this is it i mean it's the thing is is that you have to understand at that point uh i'd seen a lot of performance poets i'd seen Ivor cutler i was a big fan of Ivor cutler uh i'd seen uh i'd seen attila a lot i saw john cooper clark was the first performance poet i saw i saw john cooper clark uh i saw john cooper clark opening for susie and the banshees at chelmsford odeon and that was a complete game changer for because uh, that for that, me. that was a thing of the time whether it was poetry or comedy you'd go on before bands yeah which is, that was it and which was basically what I then now. went on to do you know I was I would be I was a a very the thing is a poet a poet doesn't need a sound check poet doesn't have a load of equipment poet doesn't you know it's the in terms the portability of a poet as a support act paul weller took me on tour with him i, I went on tour with the style council in 1987 you know because and and it was literally because his crew said let's take porky because we don't have to do any work and and is and, and and even paul's dad john weller it was like, like yeah that's a really good idea nice easy it, then we sound check we don't have to bother with a another band sound check that's great let's work and so I did that. I did a tour with Billy Bragg. Billy took me out on the road with him. I mean, Billy was sort of the reason that I wouldn't be sat here talking to you if it wasn't for Billy Bragg, you know, because the thing is, is that I, I didn't know how to get more work. You know, I didn't know what to do. Is is that what lends up to the going from the poetry to the comedy? Like, what, what, what made, well, I what, think what happened was, was, and it was it was interesting, because so I was performing and I started doing the poetry that I did. Uh, um, so... So if you think it was so, what we're saying, so 1983, in that um, uh, August 1983 was my first gig. I met Billy Bragg on the 8th of March 1984. So here's another first gig. My first paid gig would have been November 1983. And that was at the University of Sussex, opening for the Piranhas in a club called The Crypt. And I got 20 quid. That was my first paid gig, and it was my first solo twenty-minute set. So, so that's the second first gig. That was the first gig I got paid for. When you say twenty-minute set, then what's what? What are you doing? Is that still poetry? Poems, poetry. just poems. Yeah. So I had, I had, I had easily forty minutes of poems to perform. Um, but I did, you know, I I did them. Uh, you know, I just picked my favourites and did that. They were sort of, some were political. Most were just jokey ones. Lots of them were stories. Uh, but like when, then, when you when you say that, like, they're, they're stories, they're jokes. Yeah. And, you you know, you go home, you write them. Yeah. You take them, you perform them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's, what, what, what's the difference? What's, is, there, is there a defining difference then between that and the, say, stand-up comedy? Well, what, what happened is, is so, this is sort of what I was getting to is that so I would you'd introduce the poem and you'd tell a little story about so this next one I'm going to do so the 
I was doing. I was so it's it's, it's so it's you go on. It's uh, it, you generally just do the first poem, introduce it. This one's called Band. Do the poem, and then hello, I'm Porky the poet. La di da di da. Chat chat chat. This next poem. Chat 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 chat. Do the poem, and so this, that became that was what the gig was. Just poems with a bit of chat between. And I went. I did a gig at the University of Leeds in um, uh, nineteen eighty, late nineteen eighty. Early, well, this is more like 86 now, I suppose. Yeah, 86 before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe late 85, 86. I did a gig at Leeds University opening for a band called Surfing Dave and the Absent Legends. And uh, my James Brown, not that one, James Brown, who worked at the NME and ran, uh, he did a, a, a fanzine of his own, Um he was Attack on Bazag. Yeah, that was Attack on Bazag with James Brown's fanzine. And Swells' fanzine, I said, was Attack on Bazag earlier. It wasn't. James Brown's fanzine was Attack on Bazag. Stephen Wells's fanzine was called Molotov Comics. Right, there we are. So, Attack on Bazag fanzine. And James was a mate, and he came to the gig. And he, I was staying at his house in Leeds, where he lived with his mum and dad. And we, after the gig, we sat in his kitchen drinking cider. And he said to me, he said, he said, you do know that the chat between the poems is now much funnier than the poems, don't you? And I'm like, what? He went, your chat, when you talk to the audience, it's funnier than those poems. Those poems are just, they're all right, but the chat is funny. And that was the first time I ever thought, I I didn't even know chat could be comedy. But then I started going to see acts and I was seeing people like Kevin Day and Mark Thomas and, and I was meeting people like John Mann. And so I was meeting people who were just... Because even then, at that point in the 80s, I thought comedy, you needed jokes. You had to tell jokes. And I didn't realise it. it could be just bullshitty narrative storytelling. And I suppose through seeing like Alexis Sale and then seeing more and more people who were doing a, a less structured form of being a comedian, you know, and that, and that and that is it. And so I started then in the late 80s transitioning, basically, from poet to stand-up. And it was in about 89, I thought, because the thing is, I was trying to get gigs. I was a really good poet and a really good performer. But if you, you go to a comedy gig, I remember phoning the comedy store, trying to get an open spot, speaking to Kim Kinney. And again, another one of the men, I would not be talking to you now if it wasn't for Kim Kinney, the late Kim Kinney, an absolute you know launched the career of so many comedians in the uk that man giving them a proper shout at the store giving them their chance and kim i remember phoning the comedy store uh kevin day gave me the phone number of the comedy store and said call and ask kim for an open spot and i remember the phone ringing hello comedy store and I'm like, uh, hello can I speak to kim kenny please yes kim i went hi uh uh, uh, Kevin Day gave me your number uh, to ring to talk about an open spot uh, uh, what's your name and I went uh, oh it's Porky the Poet he went we don't book poets and hung up the phone <laughs> so that day I thought I've got to use a different name I've got to get a different name so I decided to start working as Phil Jupiter so I, I gave it a couple of weeks and I phoned a couple of weeks later and said my name's Phil Jupiter Kevin Day told me to ring for an open spot and I had to do, uh, I did, 
three open spots and he was never there. They went well, but, you know, I kept coming back. I did three. And I kept coming back. I kept phoning. And eventually I did one and he saw me. And then I got booked. And I would I would say, you know, my first proper booking gig at the comedy store, I kind of consider my first stand-up gig. And I couldn't tell you when that was. What I'd like to do, actually, is go down to the archive at the store and, and look and see when that was. But it would have been uh, 1990 or 1991. And by this time, I was also a parent. So the pressure of having to get work was much more upon me. So there were three first gigs, in a way. There was my first gig where I got just got pushed on stage by Attila. My first paid gig that I got, opening for the Piranhas. Because the first time you get money for it, then you're you're a professional. And then, so that was the first professional poetry gig and the first professional stand-up gig i always consider the comedy store because that was that's like that's like the national theater of comedy that's the place you know and uh yeah 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 so yeah i've got three first gigs (laughs) (laughs) uh just uh briefly about the transition um do you consciously like so when you're told oh it's the chat between yeah is is funny yeah. Are you preparing that chat? Or so what I do is, is because is I've never written stand-up. I can not I can write poems. That's what I love about poems. And the funny thing is, is even now, all of my good stand-up comes out of chat before poems. So at the Edinburgh Fringe for the last, well, for the last, I've, I've done six, I think, five, six poetry shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, at the Free Fringe. So I always do the poetry at the Free Fringe. And it always fills out. And people always come and see it. Uh, and I am still to this day developing stand-up ideas in the chat between the poems. There's still stand-up ideas are emerging when I'm kind of chatting between poems on stage because I'm very loose now, I'm very confident. The problem is now, is being 57, is in the old days I'd like say something funny before a poem and remember it and do it again. And literally I'm just forgetting shit now. I used to, the other way of generating material that was really uh, useful to me, and again I've got to thank Lee Evans, one of my most... uh, Successful bits when I started as a stand-up was it used to be a routine I did about um, why Britain never went to the moon. And it was just the conceit was astronauts from Essex, you know. And it was it was just about... Um, it was about... Ast- and it ended up with astronauts on the radio, but getting a minicab company from South End on, the, you know, being a... Mission control, this is part of 13... And I remember, it's a prick up in Basildon. <laughs> Don't fuck me about Dave. I remember it, it was that. And that and that bit came about because I was doing a gig and Lee Evans was always late for gigs. And I was the compare at this gig. And the, and the promoters at the side of the stage going, going, he's not here, keep going. He's not here, keep going. And so I, had to, I was on stage for 25 minutes just bullshitting and chatting with the audience, waiting for Lee. And I came up with that Apollo Apollo 12, Apollo 11 bit, Essex Apollo 11. I can't even remember what I called it, on stage. And that, that, that was a bit of material that kind of, if you do a good bit of material and you're doing it at clubs, it's, it, you, it, it'll last you a year, a good bit of material, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I've got Lee to thank for that. You know, um, 
Is that how you always did it once you started out? Yeah, I kind of I would I would I would generate ideas on stage for improvisation. And so the thing is, is what was really good for me was was that I emceed a lot, and I'm all, so I was very loose and improvisational as a as an MC, and so was constantly writing stuff. I remember um, Stan Nelson used to be the stage manager at the comedy store. Uh, certainly in the years I was there it was Stan it was um, um, Ali Day uh, Kevin Day's wife used to be uh, the stage manager at the store and then she moved on uh, I mean she's still stage manager now she's a remarkable woman um, and in fact it was Ali that got me my open spots with Kim because when Kim wasn't answering phone calls Ali would say oh, come and do it open spots. so again Ali Day is one of the reasons I'm sat here um, but uh yeah, uh, Stan Nelson. I remember Stan Nelson. He used to watch me comparing at the comedy store sort of week after week. And he, I remember him saying to me once, he went, you burn more good material than any other act I've ever seen at this gig. He goes, there's stuff that you do one night and I never see it again. That's that He said that you could build a complete set around. And he goes, what the fuck are you doing? And it's like, and I, I never really cared. I always, I always liked the fact, if you've got like a sort of improvisational nature, I love the fact that you say something amazing and it never happens again. There's something kind of nice about that, you know. Whereas now, you know, acts, you know, you've got that bit kicked there, you've got a phone there, you can just record everything. So now acts just record every gig that they do. And if they say something new, then it gets written down. And, and certainly when I'm developing a new show, I use the record and redo method, you know. It's interesting. I did a whole tour of improvised uh, where I, I played three different characters. And uh, I always remember if I did some, if I came up with something funny, like at one gig, I'd always try and bring it back at the next gig. And it never worked as well. Second time out, it's never as good. There's an energy. When you're thinking of a comedy idea on stage, live, it's got a life to it. But it never has second time out. It really doesn't. And you have to, that's, that's, that's something that I, I quite like. I like the fact that moments happen in a gig that, that are never going to happen again. I like that. It gives, and the audience lends, can tell as well because the, there's yeah. always a different laughter. Yeah. I mean, there's, I know there's something that I said last night that we got we got very giddy about last night on stage. I was here at Hoth, and I can't remember it now for the life of me. And it just became, it, it was about three minutes of the gig where I started talking about something locally. Now, I remember what it was. It's like, I, so I'm chatting to them. I'm chatting to them. And I and I, I said, so I've moved to Scotland. And I live right near the sea. And I mean, obviously, we're, we're at Hoth now. So um, does anybody live near the sea? And they were completely silent. And I'm like, I'm like, don't take the piss. <laughs> I'm like, don't take the piss. Come on now. I, I'm like, we live right by the sea. Some of you must live near the sea. Silence. And I'm like, look, I know I'm asking you questions, but if you answer me, it's not fucking collaboration. I said, are the counselling? Are the fucking counselling? What's going on? Is this a raw thing? You don't fucking answer questions. If it's a tan, asking a question. And then I got into that and it became a big sort of thing. And I started, don't, don't answer the fucking questions. You don't want to be, <laughs> don't want you fucking informer bastard. Don't you tell him if we lived in the fucking sea. And I got into all that. And it just, that, it just belongs to that gig, that moment. You know, I love that. I used to love that. And that, that's, the, that's the bit that people will be yeah, telling today. Yeah, but that today. is it. The thing is, and it's, I always remember, Mark Lamar was one of my favourite stand-ups. And he was always, because he was very talking to the audience about things. He used to talk to his audience a lot. 
Um, his live video, if you get Mark Lamar's um, live video, I think it's called something like, um, it's called something like 5 Million Mark Lamar Fans Can't Be Wrong. It's based on that Elvis album with the gold suit on the cover. And you can only get it on VHS. If you can get that Mark Lamar live video, there was a guy in the front row with a neck brace. And that is what most of the video is about. He did not put that man in there. The guy was just there. And it's very, very funny. But, you know, I remember, you know, his agent going, what you got? why did you go on a bloke with a fucking neck brace? Why did you? And it's like, well, he was there. And it was like, so, but I'd seen him elsewhere on that tour. There's no neck brace bloke. It was really, really funny. But where's the neck brace bloke? You know, it's just like, just one of those things. Mm. If we can, well, a final question. Yeah. Let's do gig three, Comedy Store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you go on, and this is the, the reflective piece now. Yeah, yeah. If, if you could pull yourself to, to one side right before, five minutes before you're going on stage, and today give give yourself, what, you say 1990, what, what would you say in your ear today looking back? Record them. <laughs> Record them. Because genuinely, you know, I think that I've spunked about four really good one-hour shows at the wall over the last 35 years. You know, I could have had... The thing is, I think I've had a less successful... In terms of, you know, when I look at my contemporaries that have gone on and they end up... When I see mates that go out on tour and they end up... They finish their tour at Hammersmith Apollo and they do a night at Hammersmith Apollo on their own. I'd love to have done that. I never did. I've done live at the Apollo. I've played the Apollo loads. But I never got to that level. You know, I'm at this kind of... Sort of 200 people will come and see me anywhere I go. I never... I never... You know, I was on Buscocks. It's one of the most popular comedy shows in the UK for 18 years. And I never turned that into, to you know, live gig success. I was still a good live performer, but I didn't. Bigger venues, bigger venues. I didn't follow the prescribed trajectory because I was too busy doing other things. I was, I was always very distracted by something. If I'd not done it before, that's how, you know, for fuck's sake, I've done, uh, I, you know, I was Edna Turnblad in Hairspray in the West End. I was dressed up as a woman for money for three months. Um, I launched the breakfast show on BBC Six Music. You know, I did that for five years. That's another great regret. I think what I'd have said him, no, right, here's what I'd have said in my head, never stop doing stand-up. I've stopped doing stand-up. In the last 35 years, I would say 12 of those years, I've done no stand-up. I, like, stopped doing it. Full, just stopped. I should not have stopped doing stand-up. should always have done stand-up. And I should have kept doing the comedy store. I should have always done the comedy store at least once every two months. Go back and do the comedy store, even if it was just a Thursday night. Never use that ability to do a really tight 20. Because now, if if you put me on the comedy store now, do a 20, I don't have a fucking ass because it takes me 20 minutes to remember what way to face. When I do my live gigs, I know that I've got an hour to slowly build a relationship and a rapport with the audience. Whereas, you know, I'm just a slower, more laconic old man performer, you know. Whereas the, the ability to do a really good 20 minute set at the store, you know, that all, most of my mates I know kept doing that. I wish I kept doing that. You know, I miss that. There's something about the camaraderie backstage at the comedy store. Some of the greatest nights of my life were in that dressing room. Just sat there laughing. And we and the thing is, is when I think about when we started our scene of comedians, when I started my me and my lot. So we that's so 
my contemporaries who started doing stand-up at the same time as me are like Eddie Izzard, Joe Brand, Mark Thomas, Kevin Day, uh, Jack D started at the same time as me. So Jack, um, trying to think who else. Because there was a little generation before, and I'm just all the people that I started about the same time. So yeah, so it's Jack, Joe Brand, Mark Thomas. That's that's definite. Harry Hill started after me. I remember Harry coming along. Uh, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I don't even know what my point was. <laughs> Stick at it. Yeah, it's just kind of yeah. I just wish that I'd had a better go really but you know can't grumble can't grumble you see i've done the thing is when i look back at what i've done i think that's been a charmed bloody life buzzcocks was you know one of the longest running comedy shows on bbc2 did that for 18 years uh the work that i've done in musicals i've been in the producers i've been in spam a lot i've been in hairspray i've been in urine town which was one of my favorites uh the radio that I've done I've been on I used to listen when I was a child to I'm sorry I haven't a clue and I've been on it three times one of my favourite ever radio shows I've been on Just a Minute you know which you know is not really a favourite of mine but certainly to go on it is a is a, is a singular broadcasting honour you know I've done been on shows you know I've yeah I've just you know think and it's just you know I've I've got no regrets at all about how the career went no regrets at all and, and and all I ever think is it might have been nice to do it slightly differently but I think that all the time anyway because that seems to be my predominant thought is how can I do this differently you know how can we do this that it's not been done before which is why I don't I'm not sure I'll ever do Edinburgh again now because I just think it's it's too busy I'd rather think of something else to do in August comedy wise go somewhere else and do something else because I just think that Edinburgh now, it's like a, it's more like a trade fair than a festival. It's it's somewhere to go to, you know, it's somewhere for young people to go and show off to each other. I think I've, I've, I've said my piece in Edinburgh now and I've, I've got nothing new to add. And until I have, shut up and go do something else. Do something fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm at uni, mate. <laughs> there you Thanks go. Thanks for this, Dwayne. It's been really good fun. Thank you Thank so you. much, Neil. Cheers. And there we go, folks. That was Phil Jupiter's on my first gig. An amazing episode. I think you can agree. If you're still listening now, an amazing episode. There's that moment in the interview when I just say, oh, do you remember any of it? And he doesn't even say yes. He doesn't even say, oh, I know it word for word. He doesn't say, will I recite some for you now? I go, hey, do you remember any of that first poem? Bang. And he recites the whole thing. I'm just sitting there. I remember we were in a conference room of his hotel that he was staying in and you can actually hear a little bit of doors opening just as that happens. A guy came in trying to uh, drag a hoover out and we're in this huge conference room that probably sits at any time two, three hundred people and it's just me and him on a desk that he's uh, he, he, he dragged over. He was very much going, no, no, we're sitting down, we're getting comfy, this room is ours now. And I'm glad for that because that's not the kind of bravado that I have. I'm a little shy boy. It doesn't work for me. But guys, if you enjoyed Phil Jupiter's on my first gig, then head over to Instagram. Let him know. That's where he lives these days. He's uh, he's not a Twitter boy. He's an Instagram boy. And he's studying art in Scotland. 
and he was uh he was over here uh studying some art and you know you never you're never too old never too young to to get into these new avenues in your life but that's where he lives now sharing a lot of art but he still shares a lot of comedy so it's no hassle if you share with him that you enjoyed hearing them on my first gig as i said at the start of the show if you want to hear these episodes early ad free and extended go to patreon.com forward slash my first gig pod if you are sick to your stomach that these episodes are going to be gone for the next two months there's gonna be no new episodes until 2023 and you go god why where am I going to get my new podcast? And you know, go to Patreon, subscribe to the Club Comic Tier, and you will get bonus episodes every single Friday for 10 weeks. You think this series has been long? This is, That's 10 weeks as well. If we're in the end of November now, 10 weeks is going to take us until February. Like, think of February 2023, and you could have episodes every single week until February 2023 if you subscribe to patreon.com for us. That's my first gig pod, the stars of the Irish comedy scene. And at the end of these episodes, I usually let you know who's on next week, but I don't know. Who's the start of episode four or season four? I don't know, guys, but I will tell you, kicking off the stars of the Irish comedy scene exclusively on Patreon is the amazing Jim Elliott. Now, that's a bit of a loophole. Jim Elliott is from Washington, D.C., my friend as he likes to say, but Jim Elliott has been performing comedy here in Dublin for the last 10, 12 years, and a fantastic story about his first ever gig. Oh, he! I just realised now, he was telling some story, look, yeah, he goes in, car park, shooting, bit of a weird story, but if those two things don't sound like your first ever comedy gig, well, it sounds exactly like Jim Elliott's first comedy gig, so go subscribe and listen to those, and tell your friends, tell your friends, hey, do you like comedy? Do you like all these famous faces? Well, go listen to my first gig with me, Dwayne Dugan. You can follow me on all social medias at Dwayne Dugan. If you are in Dublin, if you're in Ireland and you want some comedy in your life, go to Cherry Comedy at Whelan's every single Monday night in Whelan's of Wexford Street. Guys, how do I close out a season other than say thank you so much for tuning in? The response has been great since we swapped to Acast. Because did you not know this podcast is powered? by the beautiful folks at Acast. Obviously, you can get your podcast wherever you choose, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. But if you listen on Acast, oh, baby, is it not clearer? Oh, baby, is it not smoother? Oh, baby, do we not just feel a little bit more special? I know I do. Hope you don't mind the ads at the top, the bottom, and the middle of this show. If you do hear the ads, please don't skip them. Listen to them. Every little second that you listen kicks back a little bit of dosh to my first gig and lets me, I was going to say, helps get more podcasts. These podcasts are free. I just, I just like really just email comedians and hope that they're bored in Dublin and they've got nothing to do because they didn't bring any of their loved ones with them. Any money you give is going to go to my, you know, my white chocolate Oreo addiction. Okay. If you're okay with that, I'll keep doing these podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me for season three of my first gig. 30 episodes in the bank. Didn't think we'd get this far, certainly with the pandemic, putting it all on a hold. But if you have had fun, if you haven't, even if it's your first one and you're just here for Phil, go back, guys. Go back, go to Spotify, go to Apple. As I said, go to Acast Plus. And you can hear all the episodes with James Acaster. You can hear the episodes with Ardell O'Hanlon, Reginald D. Hunter. Are you watching I'm a Celebrity right now? Yeah? You're enjoying the antics of Sean Walsh? Go listen to Sean Walsh on my first gig before he had the Strictly Convention Kissing Scandal. Don't mind that. We don't talk about it. It didn't exist back then. All of the episodes, Todd Barry, Joe Lysett. Are you watching the World Cup? Are you boycotting the World Cup? Did you see Joe Lysett threaten to set fire to €10,000 
in response to David Beckham taking all those millions from the Qatar, t- Qatari people, then yeah. You want to hear James Aca- or uh, Joe Lice's first gig? Oh, guys, I've made too many mistakes and I'm clearly not going to edit these little mistakes out. So look, that's my time to go. Go back and listen to all those episodes. They're on YouTube, they're on iTunes, they're on Stitcher, they're on Spotify, and most importantly, they are on Acast. Exclusive episodes coming next Friday to patreon.com for us. That's my first gig. Until then, I will see you in 2023. Happy Christmas, happy year. We're back, guys, and we're coming back a lot sooner than we did last time. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been Dwayne Dugan, and I bid you... Farewell. I say good night and goodbye. Bang. It's the My First Gig Podcast. You've been listening to the My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan on ACAST. Follow online at My First Gig Pod or at Dwayne Dugan. For classic episodes, ad-free, early access and more, head to myfirstgigpod.com. This is My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan, powered by... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Acast. Enjoy.